When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. And Kristen, something that's been in the news a bit lately that's kind of caught my eye is this couple in Sweden who have a two-year-old that they call Pop. And they're not telling Pop if he, she is a boy girl. Basically, they're holding back the gender uh, from Pop and dressing him in a variety of outfits, both dresses and what they call masculine pants. Um, so that the child cannot have to come into the world with this gender stamped on his head, that he, she will be free to develop as it wants to. I, I'm screwing up the pronouns, I'm sure, but that's probably not going to be the last time it happens during this podcast. So I guess at some point down the road, this, this child pop will decide for him or herself whether he or she would like to be labeled as biologically male or female? That's sort of the thinking. Uh, it's, it's sort of a grand psychological experiment that I don't know if we we can even guess how it's going to turn out. That's sort of been the speculation on all the blogs is how will it impact this ch- child to not know? And won't there come a time, probably fairly early on, when they say, you know, I am boy or I am a girl? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, when, what happens when the kid goes to school? Right. And... The fact of the matter is, Molly, when it comes to just picking a biological gender, might seem easy to do, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's actually pretty hard to scientifically determine 100% whether or not someone is male or female. Yeah. And that might sound crazy because you could just say, well, do you go to the bathroom sitting down or standing up and call it a day? Mm-hmm. But it gets a lot more detailed than that, which we learned in an article on how stuff works called Why Would a Female Athlete Fail a Gender Test? It goes over this lengthy process of biological gender testing. Mm-hmm. Basically, what we learned is that, you know, not only is pop going to face the difficulty of the social construct of gender, but a lot of people are facing the difficulty of the biological construct of gender. So the How Stuff Works article that we reference focuses on uh, this issue that happened in the 2006 Asian Games where a 25-year-old female Indian athlete was stripped of her silver medal for the 800-meter race because officials claimed that she might not actually be a female. So the case still, as far as I know, hasn't been resolved, but... The fact that this happened in 2006, we're three years later, it's kind of staggering to think that in three years you can't figure out 
whether someone's male or female. And the whole reason they started doing gender testing for athletic events was because uh, the advent of steroids. When female athletes were taking steroids, they looked more masculine. And people were wondering if, you know, men might be competing in female events to have a better chance of winning. Mm-hmm. So it used to be that what happened before an athletic event is they'd take you into a room and you would take off all your clothes and you basically prove that you were a female just by looking. Obviously, people weren't too thrilled about disrobing right before an athletic event. I would think it can kind of throw off your concentration. Right. And and those types of, of gender testing are not routine at all anymore. It usually only takes place if a claim is filed against a specific athlete, as in the case of this 2006 Asian Games incident. And we're not exactly sure what, what all the tests um, this athlete had to undergo, but uh, we've got about four stages of the general gender, biological gender testing that would happen. And of course, it would start with a physical exam in which you would, like you mentioned, you just disrobe and you check for secondary sex characteristics. Obviously, if you have a penis or a vagina, and then they would also look at the presence or absence of body hair and other signals to whether or not you would be a male or a female. And we'll get back to that in a second, because that's not, that seems clear cut. It's not. Right. So once you, if the the physical characteristics can't conclusively determine anything, then they head to a blood test to look at physiological differences. And this is where they really examine levels of hormones in the blood testosterone, estrogen, the thinking being that men will have more testosterone. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's no real rule for how much testosterone and estrogen determines a man or woman. So got to keep going. So that's when they go to the genes. You know, we are raised thinking from high school biology that women have two X chromosomes and men have an X and a Y. And so what you would do is you would do a genetic test to determine the presence of X and Y, how they're kind of falling on the X, 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 Y spectrum. Um, and we think of that as pretty binary, but what they're finding is that it is not. Right. There is a possibility that a female cell can have a Y chromosome. Mm-hmm. So in that case, if, uh, if you're being tested and say if I was being tested and one of my cells had a Y chromosome, a doctor would probably then check to see if there is a certain thing called an SRY gene in that cell that is either absent, mutated, damaged, or disabled. Because this SRY gene is pretty important, right, Molly? Yes. I mean, this gene uh, discovered pretty recently, 1990. And the thinking is is that it's one of the many genes that starts uh, working on a fetus shortly after conception. They're thinking that there's about 54 genes that start working on the on a fetus in the 10 days after conception, mm-hmm. even though a fetus doesn't have a gender until about seven weeks in. Right. So what they think the SRY does is it flips on uh, the ability to be male. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, XX was sort of thought of as a default. If nothing else happened to you, you would turn out to be a female. If your SRY gene kicked in, then you would develop the Y chromosome and become a male. So, Molly, if I were being tested for my biological gender and they found the Y chromosome, the reason why they would look for that faulty SRY gene is because, first of all, in the absence of a Y chromosome, it would trigger the development of femaleness. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, a faulty SRY gene on a Y chromosome will have the same effect. Right. Is everyone confused yet? Because we are a little bit. But the thing about it is, is that because 
for so long people have thought of people as either male or female, a lot is not known about these genes. They're still mm-hmm. doing a lot of work. Uh, for example, like I said, it was thought that being female was sort of a default of something not getting switched on. But now researchers are looking at something called DAX1, which may actually be the thing that does turn on a female uh, gender. So there's pro-female genes is what they're thinking. There's anti-male genes. There's pro-male genes. It's a hodgepodge, Molly. I mean, you know, it's not so easy. It's XX and XY anymore. We were reading an article in Salon where a guy was saying, you know, there are XOs. There are all sorts of basically a spectrum of chromosomal identities we can have. Right. Doctors are just now realizing how many combinations, genetic combinations, that that fetus in those first seven weeks can develop. Right. But there are some people who have known that it's not just a matter of XX and XY when it comes to being male or female. And those are people who are born with ambiguous genitals, which is estimated to happen in about one in 4,500 births, uh, according to Scientific American. Right. And um, according to a New York Times article, that's about the same prevalence rate as cystic fibrosis, just to put it in perspective. Now, sort of a common thing, common term that I know I was using before I found it was incorrect is hermaphrodite. This Mm -hmm. is what we think of when people who are born with both male and female sexual organs. Uh, But the more proper term, according to some, is intersex. And according to uh, this Salon article that we referenced, which was an interview with the author of the new book, Between XX and XY, um, intersex is an umbrella term that includes people with a tremendous number of genetic conditions, from those who are born with an extra X chromosome to those with overdeveloped adrenal glands. And in between all of that, you have the ambiguous genitals like we were talking about. So sort of the standard of care for someone who was born with ambiguous genitals for a long time uh, was to kind of look with what you had to work with and then assign them a a gender, do some surgery so that they biologically fit that gender, and then never tell the kid that there was any sort of question about uh, their identity at birth. Right. And since since then, in, in more recent years, as these kids have been growing up, There have been a lot of tragic stories associated Mm -hmm. with it. That's right. And probably one of the most heartbreaking and most famous stories about the situation uh, is the case of Bruce Reimer, who was born in 1965. Right. Uh, What happened was... uh Bruce was had a twin, a male twin, and when he was circumcised at eight months, uh, something went wrong, and most of his penis was burned off in the process. And his parents decided to give him reconstructive surgery and to therefore make him more or less a girl. And they did this along with um, a sexologist at Johns Hopkins University named Dr. John Money. And Money kind of wanted to do this experiment to see whether or not nature or nurture can truly determine your gender because they had the perfect control, which was um, Bruce's twin brother, and then they would have Bruce, who is now living as a girl, and so they could kind of see what would happen with with the two. And according to Money, things went fabulously well. The the child loved being a girl. He totally took to it. But behind the scenes, things were not going that smoothly. According to articles that were written once, Bruce um, was an adult uh, and actually changed back to a male, living as a male, 
Uh, he said that he never wanted to be a girl. He would always try to play with his brother's toys. He would rip off his dresses. He hated every minute of, every minute of it. And there were some questionable things that, that Dr. Money did as well to try to teach, uh, Bruce and his, uh, twin brother about male and female relationships. And there were just all, all sorts of kind of, there was a huge dark shadow kind of in the corner of, of this whole story. And, um, then I believe it was in 2003, uh, he ended up committing suicide due to maybe not necessarily this actual process. Right. It was a, it was he, a compound situation. Yeah. Right? It sounded like his wife left him. His brother died. And there's a book, if you want to learn more about this whole situation, it's written by John Colapinto, and it's called As Nature Made Him, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Girl. But now, Kristen, this is an instance of someone being born with male genitalia and then having, you know, this unfortunate situation happen. But what we're really kind of interested in today is ambiguous genitalia. So let's talk about what happened to Cheryl Chase. What she highlights in her work with intersex society is just the damage it does to kids to alter their genitals at such a young age and then to basically lie to them about who they are. Right. It's very controversial because obviously, you know, if a, if a baby is born with ambiguous genitalia, the parents want to assign it some kind of gender for probably for social reasons and also for sexual functioning. And Chase is arguing that it should be left up to the child. Yeah. What Chase wants to happen is, uh, in contrast to money, is you would assign a kid a gender based on kind of what, you know, what your best guess was. But then if you were going to do any surgery to kind of reinforce that gender decision, you would wait until the child was old enough to be a part of that decision so that they didn't have to find out, you know, 20 years later what had happened to them as a child. Uh, obviously, this is controversial. It's it's an easy thing to say, but when you are holding, you know, a new baby and you just want to have the best life possible, it's hard to imagine that giving them a gender identity isn't the best thing possible, I would imagine. Right, but it seems like the standard operating medical procedure is slowly trending towards holding off on that surgery. Uh, in 2006, the journal Pediatrics published a paper that was signed by 50 international experts that was promoting the idea that the child should be assigned a gender as soon as possible, um, and that it should be done uh, by the doctor examining the child's genes, hormones, genitalia, internal organs, electrolytes, gonads, and urine. And then the doctors would help make the best decision for assigning a child a gender, but then holding off on the surgery until a little bit down the road when the child can have input in it as well. Right. And, you know, one thing that Chase points out in a New York Times profile uh, from 2006 is that a lot of it has to do with parents' hangups that the kid, you know, at seven might already be ready to tell you boy or girl. Mm -hmm. And then it's more just sort of, you know, the social problems with bringing home a kid that you, you know, you aren't quite sure about that sometimes forces the parents to go ahead and make the cut. Right. But at the same time, Molly, this is an almost impossible experiment to study because you have no idea what the psychological ramifications are going to be if you leave a child with ambiguous genitalia and just let them grow up and see right. what happens, you could end up with another case similar to uh, the sexologist, Dr. Money, where it, it turned out horribly mm -hmm. for, for the child. Yeah, there's basically no long-term study of any of this. And what we tend to have in the press are the very negative anecdotes, that the things where you know people committed suicide and just lived with this awful misery of not knowing who they were or not being able to endure what had happened to them when they were smaller. You know, we don't have any evidence on people who had surgery and were fine with it. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, it's very hard thing to study and determine, but I will say that, you know, one of the main goals of intersex organization is just to bring awareness to it and, you know, to know that it happens and to know that there's not necessarily something wrong with the child that right. needs to be fixed. Um, it just needs to be sort of recognized as part of the spectrum that we were talking about earlier. Right. And um, going back to that Salon article with the author of Between XX and XY, his main thesis is everyone is intersex because going back to those chromosome levels and levels of hormones and sec- secondary sexual characteristics, it is nearly impossible to say someone is perfectly male or perfectly female because there is no absolute standard for it. Now, perhaps this was our subconscious attempt to broaden our listener base, Kristen, by saying no one is perfectly male and no one is perfectly female. And thus, everyone can listen to Sminty, which is thought of as sort of a female podcast. But, you know, it's it's an interesting, interesting issue. Yeah, absolutely. And um, on a side note, uh, if you want to do some fantastic summer or fall reading, I do highly recommend the book Middlesex, which is a fictional account of um, a hermaphrodite by Jeffrey Eugenides. And it is a fantastic um, fictional book. And speaking of summer and fall reading, as you know, we recently did a podcast on Chicklet and what our listeners are reading. And we decided we just had so many great reading lists that we might start sharing one at the end of every podcast. Mm-hmm. So keep them coming because we like them. Um, my wallet doesn't like getting them, but my brain does. Uh, today we're going to share the reading list of Abby who works at a food magazine. And so she's reading a lot of food-related books like Heat by Bill Buford, My Life in France by Julia Child, Cuisines of the Axis of Evil by Chris Fair. Sounds interesting. Simple Cooking by John Thorne. Uh, A novella, Shop Girl by Steve Martin. Also Trail of Crumbs, Kim Suni, and Happy All the Time by Laurie Colwin. So if you would like to send us your reading list or send us questions, comments, or really anything at all, just want to share your thoughts, please send me and Molly an email at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And as always, um, if you would like to read the article that we referenced, Why Would a Female Athlete Fail a Gender Test? And many more articles about gender, biological gender, and how gender develops in the womb and outside of the womb and all of that in between, you should head over to HowStuffWorks.com. And if you just want a daily dose of Kristen and or me, head over to our blog, HowToStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. I think those are all the reasons you'd want to go to HowStuffWorks.com, but they really are countless, aren't they, Kristen? Yes. So head on over to HowStuffWorks.com, and we'll see you next time. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. 
This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.